Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. So we are Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, verses 14 through 29 is going to be our text for tonight. We are on the podcast, RK Ministries podcast. You can find that wherever you find your podcast. I encourage you to go find it, like it, uh, subscribe to it, share it, and uh, give us a good review, some good comments on there. Same thing with YouTube. Go find us on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe as long as YouTube will let us stay up. Uh, so uh, go like, share, subscribe, give a good review, give some comments. And then even on Facebook, share it with your share it with your friends. Put it share it on your feed. Uh, once you listen to it, share it share it on your feed so others other folks can find it. That's how we keep increasing uh, the audience. So, and as always, if you got prayer, prayer requests, I encourage you to go to uh, Friendship Baptist Church. Just Google Friendship Baptist Church Tallahassee, at Tallahassee, Alabama, and uh, go to our website, and you can find a uh, find a uh, connection card on there. Uh, go on that connection card, give us your information, put your prayer, re- prayer request down, and we'll put it on our prayer list, and we'll pray for those needs every every Wednesday and, and Sunday. When we, we get together as a body, we'll pray, and then uh, we, we print out a prayer list that folks can carry home with them to pray during the week. So we'd, be, we'd love to pray for you and the needs that you have in your family. So last week, when we were dealing with Ecclesiastes 7, uh, or last time we were together, uh, we're in verses one through thirteen, the beginning of it, and we titled that section "Life is Better Than uh, Life is Better with Wisdom." And Solomon's going to talk a little bit about wisdom in this section as well. Wisdom's been a constant theme throughout Ecclesiastes. Uh, he's he's come to a conclusion on wisdom. And again, remember Solomon is Solomon is driving home a point for us, and he's causing us. He's making us focus on a question. How do we find true meaning and true value in life? And so he's been on this quest to demonstrate to us that if we look at life merely from an earthly perspective, if we look at life merely under the sun, as he uh, states it, that we're going to come to a conclusion that it's all vanity, it's all emptiness, it's all grasping at the wind, there is no hope, there is no value in life. If we merely, if all we have is is this temporal world in which we live and once we die we're we're maggot food and that's it so he's making us face that question and driving us to a conclusion he's already given us foreshadowing to that conclusion uh, in ecclesiastes in chapter 12 he's going to come to the full conclusion and tell us that the end of all things is that we ultimately uh, serve god that we fear him and we keep his commandments that is that is the the totality of what God intends for man to do. And we'll talk about that when we get to that chapter. But he's already given us foreshadowing to that all along the way. He, You know, sometimes you read Ecclesiastes, you think, man, this, this dude is, is atheist, he's paganistic, uh, he has no view of God, and he's really pessimistic. Uh, but what he's doing is using a literary tool to help us understand that if that's the way we look at life apart from God, there is no hope. 
but he's already shown us along the way that he does believe in God and he knows that the answer is only found that the the answer to the meaning of life is only found in knowing that there is a a, a one true living God a creator of this universe who gives meaning and purpose to every person who is on planet earth and so he's he's causing us to contemplate that question and driving us to the conclusion he's going to come to in chapter 12 but in wisdom, he's seen, hey, if all we look at wisdom is merely under the sun, then it's vanity and emptiness as well, because you're never going to find true meaning and value in life just in wisdom. But it's also concluded that even if you look at life that way, that wisdom is better than folly uh, in the grand scheme of things. Tonight, he'll talk a little bit about wisdom. But last week, he talked a great deal about wisdom. We saw that in verses 1 through 4, sorrow is better than laughter, um, and we talked about uh, what that meant, we saw that rebuke is better than praise. It's better to have somebody tell you the honest truth than somebody who flatters you all the time. Uh, I also talked about the, the idea of the long haul is better than the shortcut. Uh, you know, and he used the illustration of bribery in that part of the text that sometimes it's better to do things the right way that takes a little longer time than to try to take a shortcut because it may come back and bite you. Uh, and he also reminded us that today is better than yesterday. In uh, verse 10, we talked about the idea of the good old days, right? While there are some, there is some value and things that we can learn and glean from the good old days, that not everything in the good old days is always good, right? And there are things in today that are better than they were yesterday, and we need to seize the day for the kingdom of God. And he also reminded us again, wisdom is better to help us see uh, life. Wisdom helps us see life better. Uh, still can't get that wording in my mind from, from even since last week. So wisdom is an important aspect, and he's going to talk a little bit about wisdom and some various other things that we'll, we'll talk about tonight. So let me get that uh, get tonight's notes pulled up. And finally got me a screen to put in front of me so you guys can tell me what you think, how it looks now, because usually I got my notes and I'm looking down and reading my notes and commenting and those kinds of things. Now the screen's right in front of me in the top line of my notes. I'm going to try to keep right above the camera so uh, it gives the illusion that I'm giving eye contact to the camera the entire time, although you'll be able to see my eye movement, see me reading uh, verses and, and, and quotes and whatnot. But anyway, uh, so that's my new redneck setup. You'd have to see it. Uh, nothing fancy about it, man. I tell you, if you've seen, this setup is off the point, but if you've seen the, the setup I've got, it's in a room in, in our home that uh, is a spare room. I got a little table that I was able to scavenge uh, that uh, was not being used anymore. It's a nice little table. Uh, one day if I have a full shot, I'll be able to see it. Um, but I've got uh, two uh, drop lights, you know, like them kinds you put in the chicken coop, getting two big old screens on them. I get two drop lights with some LED bulbs I found for eight bucks a piece, and you can cut, you can change the warmth on them uh, and the lighting on them. Uh, so I got two of them that are, are positioned at different angles to give me the reflection and the light that I need. And then I got some cheap uh, LED lights behind me on this uh, dresser that's blurred out in the background with my fake brick uh, that's uh, in the place where the mirror is. So, so you won't see the reflection of that. And then uh, attached to this table that I have in front of me uh, is an old piece of 2 by 4 that came off a pallet uh, with a piece of old, uh, you know, flooring for outside deck material uh, that it, the monitor is sitting on top of and is screwed to. So anyway, uh, real fancy uh, setup that I've got here, but hey, it, it does what it needs to, needs to do. 
So we're getting there. Uh, one little piece at a time is coming together and maybe getting better and better as we as we go. But back to Ecclesiastes. That's really what's important. Uh, so uh, verse uh, verse 14, starting start our text, uh, Solomon begins in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that Man may not find out anything that will be after him. And so that's an interesting uh, interesting verse for us to ponder, I think, uh, this idea that God's made both the day in which we prosper and the day in which there is adversity. And I think there's one thing in our society with this um, health and wealth gospel that we have. We, we have this false illusion that's being perpetrated or you know, the propaganda that's being uh, administered over the airways that says, hey, if, if you are a follower of Christ, that everything ought to be always cake and ice cream for you. And if you got enough faith, you'll you'll have, you know, you'll have T-bone steak, right? You'll have your cake and eat it too. And everything will be hunky-dory. And if you don't have enough faith, then you're going to struggle a little bit in life. And, you know, hopefully that's not a complete straw man of that argument, but it seems to be the way that they argue this idea of the blessing that God gives to uh, believers uh, and the lack of blessing in, in their definition of what blessing is, the idea that blessing comes mostly through monetary blessing in this world and things and stuff and, you know, relationships and all those kinds of things. But here, uh, Kohelet, the preacher, Solomon, is telling us, here's what we need to consider. We need to consider that uh, in this world that you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. And in the good days, God is sovereign and in control. And in the bad days, God is sovereign and in control. And you and I need to understand that God made both of those days in our life. And we need to trust him in the midst of those days. And so I mean, if you have just a cursory knowledge of the Bible and how people who whom God has used have lived their life, you know that every one of them had ups and downs. Every one of them lived this verse. They had good days and they had bad days. Even the second person of the Trinity who stepped into humanity, the word became flesh, John 1.14, uh, in his life, he had pain and suffering in, in his uh, humanity here on planet Earth. And so, you know, why, why do we think that it's only God is blessing us when, when we have all the things that we deem as good? In our life, and you know, it's the thing that that bothers me sometimes about the way we think as believers, especially in our prayer life, when we're praying for God to do miracles. Right, we're going to God to ask Him to intervene in our lives or in the lives of our loved ones uh, to bring about. You know, if if we're honest, the majority of our prayers are trying to bring about healing for the for the for this human body, right? And that people are dealing with sickness. Or, you know, some of them are relational, some of them are financial. But it seems to me the vast majority of prayers and prayer requests that people give almost always have to do with, with healing the sickness or the ailment that's in this human body because of the fall. And it seems that some, we have got in our minds, or at least we, at least we talk like this, whether we do it unintentionally or unknowingly, it seems that we, we talk this way, that if God has actually healed the person or healed the sickness or the disease, well, God's blessed us, right? He blessed them. He blessed us. Well, what if he chooses not to heal the sickness or the disease? Does that mean that God's not good and that he's still not blessing us? 
Well, obviously the answer to that question is no, God's still good and God's still blessing those who are his children. Even if he doesn't choose to heal that disease there, there's a greater blessing that's going to come from that because Paul reminds us in Romans chapter uh, 8 that all things work together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is ultimately, even in even in the tragedy in this world, God is ultimately working out good. And that ultimate good is that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate conclusion and fulfillment of that good is when Christ comes again. And he, deal, he deals with sin and judgment <coughs> Excuse me, once and for all. And he establishes the new heaven and the new earth. And he is our God and we are his people for all of eternity. So whatever our circumstances are, we ought to understand every day that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it no matter what the circumstances look like. And I think Job's a good example of that. i got a cross-reference uh, for you. Job chapter 1, verse 21. I mean, the whole book of Job, the whole story of Job is a prime example of one who lived in prosperity and understood what it was to be blessed in that way by God and also understood what it was to live in great tragedy and still honor uh, the God who had given him the plenty, even in his little, uh, and even in the tragedy. Uh, he honored God. And here's what Job said in Job, Job chapter 1, verse 21. After he had lost pretty much his entire family other than, than his wife, he said, and then Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then uh, a little later on in Job chapter 2, Job's wife comes to him and says, after all these things have transpired, he says, you just curse God and die and, and get it over with. And then here's how Job responds to his wife says in Job chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good uh, from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Isn't, it, isn't, that, isn't that the question? Should we only rejoice in God whenever we have good going on? When we're on what, you use our language today, the mountaintop. Or should we not rejoice in God even when we're in the valley, right? Isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God is with the The shepherd was with him. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? And you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. And he even concludes with, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And, and, and no matter what the road looks like ahead of us, uh, you know, last week we had the idea who can make who can make straight what God's made crooked. Even if God lays a crooked road in front of us, because God is with us as believers, you and I can you and I can rest assured that God uh, is blessing us even in what seems to be crooked for us. In some way, in some in some fashion, it's going to ultimately come out for the good, the glory of God. Ultimate, the ultimate good is the glorification of God, and He's using our life and using our circumstances to bring about the ultimate good. And I think Paul understood that. And, uh, you know, one of the verses that we probably mis misuse and misquote uh, quite often is found in Philippians 4.13, right? Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, we apply that to every aspect of our life. You know, the crazy things. If Hey, I, I want to go climb, climb Mount, Everest, Mount Everest. Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Well, that's not what that verse is talking about. Paul, listen to what Paul says. It starts really in verse, verse 10, the, the, the dialogue. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me, or revived your concern for me, rather. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, no opportunity to help him in his ministry. And he goes on in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. And that's where we all have got to get to. We all got to get to the place where we learn, and no matter what our current situation is, that we're content in where God has us, right? We're content in what God has for us and what God has given us, and we're satisfied with him. And that doesn't mean we ought not do what we can to work to better ourselves or, you know, increase our income. Even even Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, tells us that a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, right? So there's nothing wrong with working and building wealth and those kinds of things. But in the same token, you and I got to understand that if we don't have that opportunity in our life, if say we're like Jesus when he walked on the earth, he didn't have a place to lay his head. He only had one set of clothes, the Bible uh, tells us. So, uh, you know, even even in those days, in those ways, or in those circumstances, we ought to be we ought to be content and uh, trust in God. It shows it shows our trust in the providence of God in our life. Verse twelve: I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that's always an interesting thing when I see that sentence in that passage. This idea of facing plenty and facing hunger or facing abundance and facing need. They're challenges to both. The danger in the plenty is that we get we get over uh, confident in our plenty and we trust in the plenty, right? Like the man who had the bumper crop who filled his barns to the full and they it was exceeding and he says, I'm gonna tear down my barn, build new barns, and I'm gonna stuff all my stuff in my barns and I'm gonna eat, drink, and be merry because I have plenty. And the Lord says to him, you fool, today your soul is required of you. And then whose things are these going to be that you have uh, acquired, my paraphrase. So there's there's challenge in the plenty, the, the rich young ruler. It, the plenty challenged him, right? He comes to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, what does the law say? He says, this is what the law says. And Jesus says, well, go and do it. He says, I've done that since my youth, which was a stretching the truth. Uh, at that moment, he just broke the law. Um... But Jesus said one thing you like, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible tells us the man walked away sad because he had great riches. He had great wealth. He had confidence in his wealth. He had more confidence and he, and he, and he had more um, love for his wealth than he did for the Savior. And so that's the danger of facing plenty. And the danger of facing hunger and need is that you and I will get uh, become cynical. We'll get angry at God. We'll blame everybody and everything and blame God even for that uh, that lack that we have in, in our life rather than allowing it to turn us to God and, and seek him diligently and, and seek him for change and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, fulfillment for the needs that we have in our life and trusting him instead of driving us to pray like uh, the Lord taught his disciples to pray. Our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the intent of that statement in the prayer is that we seek the Lord daily for the needs that we have. And we are content daily with how the Lord blesses us in meeting those needs, whatever capacity that may be, whether it be T-bone or baloney. Uh, we, we trust the Lord in meeting those needs. And that's when Paul says, I know how to face plenty and I know how to 
face hunger. I know how to face abundance and I know how to face need. How does he face that? I can do all things through him, meaning Christ, who strengthens me. And you and I have to learn that same that same uh, truth. Every day is the day that the Lord's given us. Whatever the day brings, it's the day that the Lord has made and we ought to rejoice in it. And we can rejoice in it even in the difficult time. Even if we're living the life of Job, we can still honor and glorify God in the day that he has given us. Then it goes to verse 15. In my vain life, Solomon says, I have seen everything. And, you know, that that is the truth, right? If you've read Solomon, if, you read, if you've been following with us in Ecclesiastes, there's no stone uh, of life's activity that Solomon has left unturned. It says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And, and don't, we, don't we talk like that, right? Don't, don't we, don't we uh, malign over those kinds of things? We look out into the world, and because uh, what we do is we, we, we see ourselves as the righteous one, right? That's one of our problems in, in reading the Bible and those kinds of things. We always see ourselves as the hero, right? When we look out into the world, we always see ourselves as the righteous in the world. And, and, and so this is a problem that Christians or, or, or so-called Christians have, uh, that we look out into the world and we see ourselves as righteous and we see those who are not living uh, a righteous kind of life or what we deem as, as righteousness. They're living what we would see, see as sinful lifestyle. We see them prospering in the world and we get like Solomon, right? We throw up our hands and say, well, what's, what's the deal, God? Well, why is it? I'm trying to do everything I can to be obedient to you and follow after you. But here's this uh, wicked person out here and it seems like you're just blessing them left and right. And I'm sitting over here, I'm sitting over here struggling, right? Don't, don't we talk like that? Maybe you don't talk like that, and maybe you don't think like that, but you probably heard somebody who, who you know, says they're a Christian that, that talks like that. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us have at least thought that, right? Uh, what's the deal here? Um, and that is that is a reality in this world, right? That it seems sometimes that the wicked, no matter how wicked they are, it seems that they are getting away with their wickedness and that they are prospering in the midst of their wickedness. Why? While sometimes... It sees. It seems as though the righteous uh, suffer in their in their righteousness. Now, the only problem with that is Americans. You know, we, we live in the most prosperous uh, you know place on the planet uh, in the history of man, and so there are many people around this world that are followers of Christ who are far worse off than even the the poorest among us, right? Are and so we, we have a distorted perspective in general of what um, you know wealth and riches are in in the world, and so uh, in that sense we, we are far we are far better off uh, financially than most Christians on planet Earth. But anyway, that's, that's one 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 side of this this coin is the second issue is that even it, the only way that this makes sense that it is futile and. And to use Solomon's language in Ecclesiastes, this grasping at the wind or, or vanity to try to find meaning. If, if you see someone who's trying to live a righteous life suffering, someone who's not concerned about righteousness uh, prospering in their wickedness, you know, it, it seems as though things are upside down. The only reason that it seems that way is if we, mirror, if we only look at life 
under the sun. If we only look at life from this perspective that this is this is all there is. And if you look at it that way, then yeah, it seems futile and it seems upside down and it makes it makes no sense and why I even bother, right? But you and I have to understand that there is more. There is a God. There is eternity. There is life after death. There is judgment, and every person is going to stand before God and give an account. And if the wicked seem to be getting away with their wickedness right now, they're not going to inevitably get away with their wickedness because they will stand before God in judgment, just like you and I will stand before God in judgment, as Revelation tells us in Revelation 20, uh, beginning verse 15, that uh, all the books are going to be open. And people are going to be judged by everything that's written in those books. Every deed, every action, every word you've ever said, every thought you've ever had, you'll be judged by your life and the things written in those books. And if we're judged by those things in those books, you can bet your bottom dollar that every person will be found guilty. And it's only those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ and have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life that will be able to stand in that day of judgment because they will find themselves forgiven in Christ Jesus and clothed in his righteousness rather than merely being judged by what's in those books. And the wicked will get their just reward, right? In, in, in what we think is the blessing that they receive, even in their wickedness in this world, the Bible tells us in another place, well, they've got their reward. This is it. Right? This is the best that they're going to have. Uh, eternity for the wicked is going to be um, damnation, <laughs> fire and brimstone, gnashing of teeth, right? separation from God. And so we've got to look at it in a proper, proper perspective and understand that no matter what it looks like right now, God's not overlooking wickedness. God actually is judging wickedness even as we speak. You know, just think about our nation and this world, the things that are going on. One of one of the judgment God gives uh, for sinfulness is to turn people over to a debased mind so that they continue to follow in their sinfulness and their depravity. We see that in full display today. Uh, another thing that God does to judge a people is to give them those leaders that they so deserved, right, or wanted that continued the wickedness in the world. And the only thing that's going to turn that around is a revival by by God, and the only, and what you and I need to do as believers, uh, in the midst of all this chaos and wickedness that seems to be rampant and prospering in this world, is we need to be on our face before our Savior, and we mean, we need to be calling God to bring about spiritual awakening and spiritual revival in our own lives, and let that translate into this this world that we are of salt and light in this world and through our faithfulness to him that he can spark a revival of of people coming to faith in christ because we've been faithful uh, to him so this is verse 16 be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise why should you destroy yourself be not overly wicked neither be a fool why should you die before your time. And again, that's an interesting verse that, you know, might throw us off at, at first reading of it. But one of the things I think that we need to uh, understand, I think it's Warren Weir's to be brought out in his commentary uh, on Ecclesiastes in, in chapter 7, this verse, that the verbs that are used in Hebrew, and again, I'm no Hebrew scholar, I'll just tell you what I read from other people. Uh, he, he says that these verbs in, in, in uh, verse 16, have the uh, they they're reflexive in their nature in their action, and so what he's really telling the people 
and this is his translation of the verse, don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. And so you can look at it in this way. Don't be self-righteous, right? And, and a good example for that, those of us who are Christians and understand the New Testament, don't be like the Pharisees, right? Don't be like the religious leaders of the day, the, 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 of Jesus' day, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. Don't be self-righteous because you remember what Jesus says, they are a brood of vipers, but they thought they were the most righteous people on planet Earth and so did those who followed after them, thought they were the most righteous people on planet Earth. So when Jesus tells the people that follow him, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that, that would have blown their minds because to them, if anybody was going to enter the kingdom of heaven, it was going to be the Pharisees. Uh, because in the Pharisees were self-righteous people. Uh, as a matter of fact, John chapter 3, we, we began that today at, at uh, Friendship Baptist Church. Uh, I will post it on the podcast here a little bit later this evening. You can go find it. But it, uh, we, we live-streamed it on uh, Facebook this morning, so you can go find it there and should be on our YouTube channel at some point. But we talked about this idea of Nicodemus and this self-righteousness and how Jesus confronted that very issue and told him that this is what this is what he needed. He needed to be born again. And so, you know, I think what Solomon's warning is, is again, because it seems like Solomon's saying, walk, you know, walk the middle of the road. But later on, he's going to tell us in just a few verses that the only way we can really walk in righteousness and walk in true wisdom is to is to fear the Lord. So I think what Solomon is really warning against is a people who have a false sense of righteousness. Don't don't be self righteous. Don't be overly righteous in that sense that you're you're self righteous and you look at your own life in comparison to other people and deem yourself to be more righteous than you are. And that's really our problem, isn't it? Isn't it? Our problem most of the time is not that we view ourselves as less righteous. We view ourselves as overly righteous uh, in, in our lives. And so I think that's a warning against that. And, and again, don't declare yourself to be overly wise, wiser than you really are. And even Paul reminds us of that in, in the New Testament that we see in the mirror dimly, right? Uh, we, we don't understand everything we need to know. Uh, we, don't, we don't always know what we don't know, right? And so one day we'll see as we are We'll know even as we are known, we'll see clearly. But now, even in our redeemed, regenerate state, our brand new, our brand new nature, we still see dimly. So don't be overconfident in our wisdom. See God for for wisdom. Um, and then he goes on in, in uh, verse seventeen. You know, don't be don't be overly wicked. Again, don't don't give your lives over to a life of sinfulness. Uh, we need to follow after the Lord and follow after true righteousness that we find uh, in Him. And, and He goes on to say, "Why should you die before uh, your before your time?" Then verse eighteen he gives us, it, "It is good that you should take hold of this." And I think that this refers back to righteousness and wisdom. Uh, it, it is good that you should take hold of this righteousness and wisdom and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And so uh, I think Solomon, again, he's given us this foreshadowing that the ultimate answer uh, that we're looking for is found in the fear of the Lord. He's going to give us that same thing in chapter 12 when we get to the end of this thing. 
and we'll talk more about what the fear of the Lord means then, but just remember in Proverbs, Solomon, same person who wrote Ecclesiastes, wrote Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the theme passage, the thesis statement of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and fools hate, uh, you know, uh, that. So, uh, and if you trace out that fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs, and you get to Proverbs chapter 16, you're going to find that it's through the fear of the Lord that a person turns away from sin, and he turns toward towards God in, in redemption and finds salvation. And so, I think it is that we ought to gravitate toward or we ought to pursue after righteousness and wisdom, but the only way we can really do that is find it in God who has revealed that to us and became that for us in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Because of the Father you are in the Son. Excuse me. Who became to us wisdom from God righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So he is to us, he's become for us wisdom and righteousness. So if we want to grasp hold of it, how do we grasp hold of it? We'll grasp hold of it in Jesus Christ. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And all you got to do is look out into our cities and look out into our states and into our nation and look at some of the leaders and the rulers that we have and you'll see that there are a lot of them that are not wise rulers right and and i don't mean that even in a facetious way there are some of them who are intellectually uh ignorant um and i don't mean that to be rude but when you have when you have congress people talking about an island in the ocean having being worried that it's going to tip over and flip upside down because you have more people on one side of it than the other. That, that is absolute ignorance. And I cannot believe that people with that level of ignorance are even elected to office, but they, they are there. And so we have more example after example of those kinds of things that you could cite to show the level of ignorance that people have, even to what our Constitution is, how our government is meant to run, and yet they are still in in office. And so, not to mention the fact that we have people who are immoral, self-centered, self-seeking, have a, an agenda um, that propagates sinfulness in our society, and we, we continue to see people elect them into office. But we don't have we don't always have wise rulers is the point I'm trying to make. And it's easy for us to look out there and see examples of that. But even if you take the wisest rulers there are, you know, wisdom in a man's life is more valuable to him than ten rulers in the city gate. Right? And so we ought to seek after wisdom, but we ought to seek after wisdom that comes from God. That's really that's that's the only place that true wisdom comes from. It comes from God. And so we seek the wisdom uh, that is from God. In verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Wow, that's a statement right there, right? I think James is in James's epistle that he reminds us, maybe James or maybe First John or one of John's epistles. You guys can Google it and look it up for me. But in, in one of those epistles, the Bible reminds us that, and I think I'm thinking maybe John, but the Bible reminds us if we say we have no sin, uh, that we're a liar, right? <laughs> and the truth is not in us. 
because we, we all sin. Hey, if 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 you know if if Jesse Duplantis is right, which I don't think he is, because he's a heretic. But if Jesse Duplantis were right, and when we come to faith in Christ, that there is this level of sinless perfection that we we reach this side of our glorification then hey i'm in trouble right because I, I know my life i've not reached that level of sinless perfection and really if you if you read the bible you'll know that we'll never get that to that place until the day of our glorification when christ comes again when when christ comes again if we are dead we will be raised first and we will we our our spirit will be reunited with a brand new uh, immortal uh, resurrected body that will be completely sin free and not prone to the sin nature that corrupted it and when Adam fell and if we are alive and remain when that moment happens we'll be caught up with him and we'll be changed as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and we'll receive our brand new sinless righteous body to match our changed redeemed soul and in that moment, we will be in sinless perfection because sin, not only will we have been saved from the penalty, we'll be saved from the presence of sin and the power of sin in that moment. Because right now, if the Apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 7, which he did, and he talked about the struggle and the battle that goes on between the soul and the flesh, right? And, and that the things that he didn't want to do seemed to be the things that he always did. The things he wanted to do seemed to be the things he couldn't do. And he talked about this great battle between the spirit and the, and the mind and the spirit. He, he followed after the law of God, but in the flesh he followed after sin. Because this old flesh, <coughs> even though we have a new nature in the inner man, the flesh hadn't caught up with that yet. And that's why we're in the middle of this progressive sanctification where God is still... <clears throat> excuse me, working on us, as the song says, to make us what we ought to be. <clears throat> and so, there isn't, a, there isn't a person who's been redeemed who is sinless in this moment. <clears throat> as you can see, I'm struggling and it's starting to catch up with me, so let's finish this up. <clears throat> Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. And hey, that's a good bit of advice. We ought not pay attention to half of what we hear people saying about us or concerning us. And there are people in this world who have a level of maturity, um, maybe that they've developed over time, that they're able to do that. When, and no matter what people say, especially people who are in public, who have more public lives, that always get criticism right about the things that they do uh, there are a lot of those who are able to you know let that roll off their back like uh, you know water off a duck's back and I think I can't remember where I read this quote or saw it but the statement was that we ought not take and maybe it was on Facebook I think I remember where it came from now but we ought not we ought not receive criticism from someone we wouldn't take advice from and that's a very powerful thing you know, don't don't always don't always put a stock into what people are saying about you or behind your back or what you hear them say about you. And you know, don't let it eat you up on the inside, okay? Uh, because your worth is not really in what people think about you. Your worth is not really in, in what your 
family thinks about you or what your friends think about you or your enemies think about you or your co-workers think about you. If you're a follower of Christ, your worth is found in Christ Jesus. It matters most what Christ thinks about you. And what Christ has said about you and what Christ has said about me as a follower of Christ is that I am predestined, I am I am sanctified, I am justified, and I am glorified. That I have been found in Christ Jesus. And it's in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that I stand. And God sees me as not guilty. He sees me as his child, his choice, possession. He sees me as part of a kingdom of priests um, in a holy nation. And that's where I need to live. And that's where you need to live. And let those things that people say roll off your back. And don't take it to heart. And don't let it become you know, that thing of that, that root of bitterness in your soul that can flare up and cause you to say things and do things you ought not do. He goes on to say, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. <laughs> so again, uh, don't take to heart what other people have said about you or in their cursing of you because you probably said things about people you ought not to have said uh, as well. And don't let that thing become a root of bitterness in you. This is what Charles Spurgeon had to say regarding this. Charles, uh, this is some of his pastoral counsel. He wrote a, uh, uh, there's a work that he wrote that, that's been compiled, letters letters to his students. Uh, he had he had a seminary of sorts that he started, and he was, he was mentoring and teaching uh, pastors. And so here's one of the things he said in one of those letters to those, to those students. He says, uh, you cannot stop people's tongues, and therefore, the best thing to do is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There is a word of idle chit-chat abroad, and he who takes note of it will have enough to do. All right, so you can't stop what people say, so just stop your ears. Don't, don't let it become implanted in your heart what people, what people say about you, especially, you know, sometimes even the good, don't let flattery become that seed of pridefulness in uh, overestimation in your life and don't let people's critique or criticism become that seed of bitterness or depression in your life. Find your worth and your value in the Lord. Take criticism from people you respect that, uh, and even those you don't respect, if they give criticism that is honest and, and true, well, well take that and, and use it to better yourself. And take the criticism from those who you respect. Maybe you should have some people around you that have have your permission to to criticize you, and and do it in a loving uh, way, so that you can see those. Because a lot of times we have blinders to our errors, right? Uh, we're, we're blinded blinded to our own faults, uh, to our fault. And so we need people around us that help to, in a loving way, in a brotherly or sisterly way, come alongside of us and remind us, hey, you know, you're not perfect. And let me show you how you're not perfect, but let me help you pray for you and help you in this area where you may need a little work. All right. So going on to verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. Solomon says, I will be wise, but it was far from me. So he, he desperately sought after wisdom with this, this whole experience, I think is a part of his test for wisdom or his search for wisdom trying these things through wisdom but no matter how hard he tried it seemed like it was constantly uh, the bar was constantly being moved because the wiser he became the more uh, the more he knew the more he understood he didn't know 
to use our language. Verse 24, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And that's what he says, this never-ending search for wisdom leads ultimately to frustration uh, in some degree because, like, like I said, the more we know, the more we realize that we don't know. And we're constantly seeking. And there's not, not necessarily, nothing necessarily wrong with constantly seeking. If we're seeking in the right way, we're seeking God for truth and wisdom uh, to ultimately... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Better ourselves so we can better serve and honor the Lord. <coughs> Good granny. Listen to Derek Kidner. As he describes this verse, <coughs> he says this is the epitaph of every philosopher who seeks after wisdom and they never can find <coughs> the headwaters of it, right? They never can find the bottom of, of the well. Uh, then Pascal wrote this about this issue of seeking after wisdom. When I consider the short duration of my life swallowed up in the eternity that lies before me and after it, when I consider the little space I feel and I see engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces of which I am ignorant and which know me not, I rest frightened and astonished for there is no reason why I should be here rather than there who put me here. Why now rather than then? That's a very powerful piece of literature to chew on for a little while and we could spend a great deal of time chewing on it but suffice it to say we are but a speck on the speck of this planet that is a speck in the universe in which we live and when you think about the timeline we are like a grain of sand on the timeline of history our time we spend on planet earth is so infinitesimal and so fleeting that it is impossible for us in the brevity of our life to understand the length and the breadth and the depth of the wisdom of God and that doesn't mean we ought not try to seek after that wisdom. But we ought to understand that there is so much more that we will probably never comprehend in this lifetime that God has given us. Seek the things that we can seek and understand, but use this life and the wisdom we do have to glorify God and live for God in the short amount of time that he's given us on planet Earth. And like we said last time, Seize the day for the kingdom of God because we've only been given a, a short amount of time on planet earth and we've been given that time by God's design and purpose. Just like Pascal says, why, why am I even here and why am I here now and not later? Why am I here in this place and not another place? Well, it's by God's design that you are here in the place that you are in the time that you are. Paul may, says as much in his uh, sermon on Mars Hill to the 
Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. That is God who determined the boundaries and the time that every human being would be born so that they would ultimately seek after God. So you're here for a purpose, on purpose. You're in the place you're in for a purpose, on purpose. It's not by accident. So contemplate that. Why did God put me here right now in this moment, in this time? It's ultimately so you, you, you can grope for him, as, even as though groping blindly uh, for him. So seize the opportunity and seize the place and time that God has put you in, right? And so so often, and I'm as guilty as anybody, so often we complain and gripe about the place and the time in which we were born, right? Last week talked about, you know, the yesterday, the, t- the times before, right? Or our history past. And we ought to learn from all those things. And we ought to glean the good things from times past. But you and I live right here and right now. Right? I can't change what happened yesterday, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I live right here and right now by God's design, and what I need to do is be use every moment and every second that God's given me to the best of my ability to glorify Him with whatever resources He's given me, whether it's, I'm a billionaire or I barely have any money in the bank. Whatever God's given me, in whatever place He's planted me, I need to use whatever I have, plenty or little, to glorify and honor God in this short time that he's given me to be on planet Earth. And for the most of us, it's going to be what I call grassroots Christianity, right? Is getting up every day, taking care of our family, going to work, going through, you know, the drudgery of the day. Just like it was for the most of most of the people of the children of Israel, it was getting up every day, tending the sheep, plowing the field, planting, harvesting, right, sowing, reaping, taking care of your family, fulfilling your religious obligations as Israelites. It was in that grassroots situation, and for us, it's the same way. Every single day, our ultimate goal is where we are, starting in our own homes in our family, to glorify God with the resources he's given us to glorify God and be intentional in honoring and glorifying God in our everyday life. That's why Jesus said what he said and the way he said it in the Great Commission. You know, we get in our minds in the Great Commission because the Lord does tell us to, to, to go into all of the earth, right? We'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, Acts, you know, in Acts chapter, chapter 1 or chapter 2. Um, and in, we are to make disciples of all people groups, pantata ethnos in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. But how does Jesus say that? He says that go and make disciples. And any of you have heard me long enough, you know that in that passage, go and make disciples, you know, baptizing them, teaching them. The only verb in that sentence in that commission is make disciples. Everything else is participles. And in essence, what Jesus is saying, as you are going, be about the business of making disciples. And that is, as you are going, if God so sees fit to make you a missionary to a foreign land somewhere across the big pond, as you're going and doing your life there, make disciples. But for the most of us, it's going to be where God planted us, where we were born, and where God redeemed us and saved us. 
or where he led us to in this, wherever it is that you're planted right now is the implication as you are going in your everyday life, make disciples. Share a reason for the hope that lies within you. That's what Christianity is about. Right? And we, we've come to this place, I think, in, in Christian circles that we put all of it on the spectacle, right? And when I say that, in some way we have turned worship into a spectacle. But we put it on that spectacle, right? And we put it on on the on the the people we see on the screens and even though I sat before you before a camera and you see me on the screen. We put it we put it on the emphasis on the things we see on the screen and the spectacle we see uh, you know on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. Or we put it in the big events that we go to, right? We gotta go to this next conference or that next conference, right? <clears throat> I don't tell you. Nothing wrong with conferences and nothing wrong with the worship of the Lord. Nothing wrong with using technology we have to worship the Lord and spread spread the gospel in those ways. But I'm here to tell you, Christianity is about the common, everyday Christian who gets up every morning, puts his britches on, puts her dress on or her britches on, and goes about the life that God's called them to do in their everyday in their everyday circles, whether it be a mom stays at home and takes care of the kids, or whether it be you know a, a dad who goes to work and does whatever his occupation is, or whether it's both going to work and doing their occupation and then juggling how to take care of the kids, whatever whatever it is, you know whatever your life looks like right now, God's calling you to live in that life in a way that brings glory and honor to His name every single day. As you are going. that That's the heart of Christianity, right? And that's where most of us as Christians live and will live all of our life. And we're to be faithful in that. And that's no less a Christian duty and service and calling than the person who's on the screen or on the stage or who's across, you know, uh, the world doing evangelism. Your role is the role God's called you to. And it's just as important as the role that God called Billy Graham to or, or whoever you want to plug in there as your hero in the faith. Whatever your role is, no matter what, no matter how the world or how Christianity has made you think it is mundane, it, it, whatever your role is and whatever you, wherever God's planted you, then he's called you to live every day. That, that, is, that is just as important. <laughs> as any other ministry that's going on around this world. And you and I need to be faithful in that. And part of that is for us to make disciples as we go every day, in our home, in the marketplace. All right, let's finish this up. Well, I'll keep on rambling about that because I think we've got to learn that as Christians. We've got to get back to that. And that's what we're all about, Friendship Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Alabama, is trying to build that culture that Christianity is grassroots, it starts with the family, and it extends from the family outward. Verse 25 says, I turn my heart to know and to search and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And we've seen that kind of language from Solomon before. He's been down this track and he's, he's done it all. And he says, I find something more bitter than death. And he says, all right, ladies, uh, hold you, hold your pantalones. The woman whose heart is snares and nets 
and whose hands are fetters. He who, <laughs> he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, if you've never read Proverbs, you need to read Proverbs, and you'll see how Solomon has talked about this before in Proverbs. There are these two ladies, especially in the first 10 chapters. There are these two ladies that Solomon contrasts in Proverbs. It's Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly. And Lady Wisdom, obviously, is a personification of the wisdom of God and, and of righteousness and the pursuit of, of God and, and, and wisdom and righteousness, the fear of the Lord and all those things that go along with that. And Dame Folly is the is the wickedness of the world, right? And this world system and those caught up in the trap of sinfulness. And both of these ladies are crying out. As a matter of fact, I forget which chapter it is. You have to go back and read it. But in one chapter, you got Dame, you got Lady Wisdom cries out, calling and beckoning people uh, to her, and then at the same time, you got Dame Folly uh, crying out and beckoning and calling people uh, to her. And Dame Folly is all, 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 often described as as a harlot or a seductress, right? The forbidden woman, and that's the idea that Solomon, I think, even here in Ecclesiastes, is is talking about. That in this pursuit of folly and, and foolishness and madness that he found this trap. And it's this wicked, sinful lifestyle as portrayed by Dame Folly, this woman who ensnares the hearts of men in this net of sinfulness or these fetters or bindings or chains of sinfulness. And it's only the one who fears the Lord. It's only the one who pursues God, the only the one who, who pleases God. And only only way to please God is through faith. If you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, without faith it's impossible to please God. So it's the only one who has faith in God that pursues after God and godliness that is able to escape this sinful lifestyle. And that's the truth for all of us, right? Because all of us are are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're in bondage to sin, the Bible says. And it takes God to redeem us from that life of sinfulness. It's only through him that we can escape that. Verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while, I, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found it. So again, it goes back to that pursuit of wisdom. We talked about how deep and very deep that it is. Um, that he's constantly searching for the end of it and he never can find the total end of it in this life. It says, one man among a thousand I found. So the implication is one righteous man among a thousand righteous men that he's found. Um, and of course, we know that he's already told us that there's not a righteous man who does not do any sin. So he's not talking about sinless perfection here either. Um, and then he's saying, but a woman among all these I have not Found, and that's not to say there are not righteous women out there, but the 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 point uh, that he is he is making to us is this idea. I think that we need to go back to from the very beginning of time, and that is there's this idea of original righteousness, and some even make a play on the word that Solomon uses here for man. It is the word Adam. And we know in Genesis, God made Adam. He created Adam, then he created Eve from uh, Adam. And when he created Adam, he created Adam and Eve um, in what 
theologians would call original state of righteousness. And they were in that state of perfection in, in the perfect world, in the perfect environment, the perfect atmosphere, no sin. And they had perfect free choice to follow after God. And we know that uh, even though they were created in this original righteous state, that they chose to disobey God and sin entered into the world at that time. And sin has so permeated uh, the human race that it impacts every one of us and every one of us are born with a sin nature. Romans chapter 3, uh, Psalm 51, um, verify these truths. And so the second side of this coin, when he says that this one he has not found, uh, is that all of us are sinners, right? And all of us are damaged by original sin uh, to the point of total and utter depravity. And left to our own nature, we will always be in rebellion with God. It takes God moving first in our lives, right? We love him because he first loved us, loved us. And that while we were yet or still sinners, it's Christ died for us. You know, we didn't get better and then God did something. God did something in spite of our sinfulness. And so... Uh, we're all plagued with that sinfulness and we need God to change that in us. And he has made a way in Christ Jesus. Listen to these two quotes and then uh, we're two quotes and a couple of verses will be done. Charles Bridges called uh, this a humbling testimony to the universal and total corruption of the whole human race. And that's what Solomon is trying to help us understand. We're all flawed and we need God to change that in us. And again, to quote Pascal, says, knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. And that's the thing. It doesn't take us long to look out in the world and say, everybody's a sinner. You don't have to teach your kids to sin. They intuitively know how to do that, right? We have to teach them how to do what is right. And so we know intuitively, even though we don't want to admit it and we try to deny it uh, and try to cover over it and whitewash it, uh, we, we look in the world, we know everyone's a sinner. But if that's all we know, that does lead to great despair. But praise be to God, there's more to the story. That there's a great God who has done something about our sinfulness and about our state. And he's done it in Christ Jesus. The second person of the Trinity stepped out of heaven, stepped into humanity, and went to the cross and suffered for my sin my sinfulness and suffered the wrath that I deserve. And now, if I will repent and trust in him put my faith in him, his, my sin is imputed to him and his righteousness is now imputed to me. And it changes that whole uh, situation that I find myself in. And I can stand before God in the righteousness of Christ and not my own sinfulness. All right, let's see here. I think we'll end, we'll end with that and let that suffice. So hopefully that was a blessing to you. Uh, we'll jump into chapter 8 next Sunday evening, Lord willing. Um, and then not this Thursday because of Thanksgiving. Hope everybody has a fabulous Thanksgiving day. And uh, it's a good opportunity for you to sit around the table and uh, be thankful to what God has done for you, uh, for who he is and what he's done. And to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Uh, maybe there's somebody in in that circle that'll be there that day that you need to share that reason for your hope uh, with them. Uh, and so if God gives you opportunity to do that, then, then be by all means share. And, and just uh, thank God for, for every blessing.
that he's given us, right? If, if he hadn't done anything else for us other than to redeem us, uh, we ought to thank him every day for that because we didn't deserve that and we don't deserve anything else from him. So anything else he does for us, uh, even that is, is, you know, it's a blessing and icing on the cake, right? And so praise be to God for his love and his, his blessing he's given us in Christ and everything else that he ever has and ever will do for us. And remember that every day is the day that the Lord has made and we ought to be rejoicing and giving thanks to him for the day he's given us and use it to bring glory and honor to his name. Well, don't forget YouTube, like, subscribe, share, comment, give a good review, find it on your podcast, wherever podcasts are available. You can find it at RK Ministries and go like, subscribe, share, give a good review and and uh, uh, you can go check us out at Friendship Baptist Church, uh, Tallahassee. Just Google that and you'll be able to find us and, and go check out our website and make contact with us. Um, leave your prayer request or any questions you have and those kind of things as well. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.